Welcome to Forming the Spirit Within, a teaching ministry of Pastor Brad Riley. Pastor Brad is an associate and teaching pastor at First Church of the Nazarene here in Wichita, Kansas. He is the founder and director of the Merciful Servants of Christ, as well as the author of numerous articles. And now, here's Pastor Brad. It is great to be with you this morning. We're going to start a brand new chapter, John chapter 18. But before we do, let's take out your prayer card and let's pray before study. You know, this prayer is, uh, I think I told you once I discovered it, uh, it's an ancient prayer. It was, and I found out, I did a little history and research, I, I kind of modernized it just slightly, just, just to make it sound a little more current English. Uh, and if I found out the origins of it, it was actually a prayer uh, written by uh, St. John Chrysostom, who was the patriarch of Constantinople in the early uh, 300s, the 4th century. And uh, this was his prayer that he offered as a study before, prayer before studying scripture. So let's, if you have that with you, let's pray now and ask the Lord to illumine our hearts. Illumine our hearts, O Master, lover of all humanity, with the pure light of your divine knowledge. Open the eyes of our hearts that we may understand your gospel teachings. Implant deep within us the fear of your blessed commandments, that through them we may conquer all carnal desires and may be transformed to live, both thinking and doing the things that are pleasing to you. For you, O Lord, are the light of our souls and bodies, and unto you we give all glory and praise, together with our Father, who is from everlasting, and the all-holy, good, and life-creating Spirit, now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you, and it is good to start a new chapter today. We we finished last week a five-part uh, series of John chapter 17, and I just uploaded the fifth part this morning to the uh, podcast, so it's there. If you missed any of them, go back and look, listen to the Jesus High Priestly Prayer, all of chapter 17. And so with, with the beginning of chapter 18, we actually are beginning the passion narrative that, as John describes it to us. So if we can think in terms of Jesus leaving the upper room, he's had the foot washing, he's had the wonderful uh, time of sharing the Lord's Supper, instituting what we would know as the Eucharist. He's given them this beautiful prayer, as we talked about in those five parts. And now it says in the beginning of 18 verse 1, when Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now, in a minute, we're going to read all 11, the first 11 verses, but get the setting in your mind. The upper room in Jerusalem, they have to walk through some city streets, and it's not too far, and then they go outside the gates of Jerusalem and down through the Kidron Valley. More than likely, it doesn't tell us what gate they went out. More than likely, they went out the eastern gate because that's the gate that faces. Uh, But I I don't have any history to back that up. I just know that faces the Mount of Olives. And the Garden of Gethsemane is is on the Mount of Olives. Uh, That's the gate that he rode in on on, uh, the donkey on 
Palm Sunday. So just at the beginning of the week. And that's also the gate that is now shut, you know, prophetically never to be opened again until Christ comes again. So, uh, and as you look at that valley, if you, if you get to look at it, if you've ever been to Israel, if you have ever have the chance, please go. But as you look at that valley, there are some, there's no brook there anymore. Uh, that, I mean, maybe in the rainy season it fills up, I don't know, but there's no brook there. It's dried up over all the years. But in that valley, there are, right outside the eastern gate there, there are a lot of graves. Uh, It's a Muslim cemetery. And it's as if they built it there to make sure nobody comes through that eastern gate. uh, Because you can't really just walk up through it like, like you did. And then when you get down in the valley and you start to go up the other side, there you're on the Mount of Olives, or Mount Olivet, as it's called. And on Mount Olivet, there's... Hebrew cemetery, lots of Hebrew graves, uh, Jewish graves there. Of course, one of the things on Mount Olivet is the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, picture this this beautiful place. Jesus often, the scripture tells us he often went there, which he and his disciples entered, but we know through scripture that he often went there to pray. It is still there. The garden is there. There's a beautiful church built on it. And inside that church is, as you approach the altar area, is a stone, the the mound of a stone, the top mound of a stone. Luther, you were there with me. Do you remember that? There's the top mound of a stone. Now, you have to visualize that would have been a large stone if that building weren't there and your topography were down to ground level when it was, geez, but the building and the foundation, everything's built up around it. And so all you see is that top mound. And there's a railing built all the way around it so you can kneel and pray and spend some time in meditation. There's a huge mosaic uh, of Christ kneeling at the garden, I mean, at that that rock in the garden. Um, And tradition tells us this is the place. This is where he would have knelt and prayed, that beautiful prayer. And there's, of course, a fairly good-sized garden. There are olive trees that are a couple thousand years old with trunks bigger than my arms can stretch. And... Beautiful pathways that you can go out in. Uh, we celebrated a communion service there, or not, not prayer service, I'm sorry, there in that, uh, in one of the gardens on Gethsemane. But it really is a beautiful place. And we can see why Jesus wanted to go there. And from there, he can look out and see the city of Jerusalem, you know, across the valley, on the hill to the other, you know, it'd go down and up. And you could see eye level, kind of just see out across the city of Jerusalem. And I'm sure his heart was full of thoughts this night, especially this night, I'm sure his heart was full of thoughts, knowing that the cross was impending upon him. Uh, it's it just, I want, I want you to kind of get in, I'm, I'm taking some time to describe that to you, because I want you to put your mind into that scene. I want you to think about all that he's done for his disciples, all that he's said to them, all that we've studied all the miracles he's performed in their presence, all the protection that he's given them, the word that he's shared with them. And now it comes to its time. And so he goes out to enter the garden. So let's look at the full passage this morning. I just want to go through 11 verses. And uh, let's just take in the whole breadth of that scripture. So I'll begin with verse 1 again. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples across the Kidron Valley. 
where there was a garden which, where he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word which he had spoken. Of those whom thou hast given me, I lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. The slave's name was Malchus. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father has given me? Let's stop there. Whenever I read scriptures from the Passion narrative, your mind sometimes, if you're like me, my mind sometimes, it'll just fill in the gaps of the other Passion narratives from the other three Gospels. And, and you think about, oh, this isn't there, but this is there, and this isn't there. They all tell the story slightly differently, um, all accurately. Absolutely nothing that would contradict the others. They just choose to accent different points rather than others. And I find that fascinating. Some of the things that John chose to accent in his passion narrative is a little different than some of the others. So let's begin with that thought. What's, what's maybe different here, and what is, what is John teaching us as we read through this? So we'll start with the thought that he's in the garden. Now, I want you to think of, if I use the word uh, antitype, do you all know what that means? What's an antitype? I'll write it. What I mean by that is like this. Antitype. Well, it would be typical. Okay. The opposite of. Yes. Okay. So, that would be the opposite of what? Opposite of a type. Uh-huh. Okay. So, what other place in scripture is the garden or a garden of a type? Well, of symbolizing we, something. What we think of a garden is a, a garden of vegetables and tomatoes growing and yeah. all that. A uh, garden to them is probably flowers and mm-hmm. sure. probably the olive trees right, right there and, right. and all of this. And this... So what, what in scripture, though, what, think of a, a garden type in scripture. Eden. What Eden, okay, yes, the yeah. Garden of Eden. And the Garden of Eden, which we would also call paradise, uh-huh. where humans, man, Adam and Eve were created, right? Where they had loving fellowship with God. And, and remember, that was Jesus. Jesus is eternally existent before the whole world, the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus knew all about, I mean... Jesus was part of that experience with Adam and Eve in the garden, just not physically as a human being, okay? But, uh, so now he, 
it's it's not it's not surprising that Jesus chose a garden, where he always there, some of his closest moments with his disciples were in a garden. Whenever they were in Jerusalem, you got to bet they went to that garden a lot, and that's what it tells us right here often. And that's a type. It's so that the Garden of Gethsemane becomes kind of an anti-type. The Old Testament type, okay, is paradise. And in this world, the Garden of Eden, beca- I mean, the Garden of Gethsemane becomes kind of like the anti-type. It's 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 uh, it's an opposite. It's not paradise. It's on earth. It's not paradise, okay, but it is a type. It's a fulfillment of a type. And so, what we look for in scripture study is in the Old Testament, we look for types. And in the New Testament, we look for antitypes that kind of are the balance or the opposite, the balances that are fulfilled. And I'm not even sure if anti is the right word there, but, um, but you know, the fulfillment uh, of that type. Um, does that make sense to you? Yeah, but it okay. also, the, the Garden of Gethsemane to a Christian could almost be like the Garden of Eden. <clears throat> okay, well, it was pretty powerful experience when I was there. Exactly, what I'm talking about <laughs> But think about what all happened in the garden. It was in the garden of Eden that man and woman exercised their freedom against the will of God. That's right. So that's so the downfall of man. What would bring fulfillment? And, and man sinned and man was cast out of the garden. So what would bring fulfillment to that in the garden of Gethsemane? Bring the circle completely around. And now we have another human man who's willing to, while in the garden, completely obey God, the Father. So he's going to cover what happened in the Garden of Eden. That's right. He's bringing to fruition what should have happened in the Garden of Eden, which was obedience by humanity. Mm -hmm. Jesus fulfills in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that powerful thought? Yes, it is. Okay. There's so, these type of types and and fulfillment types, they're all over scripture. Okay. They're all over. And I've maybe mentioned them before in other studies, but I I might not have. This one was just powerfully came to my mind. Um, And I could digress and talk about lots of them, but this isn't the study. This is a study of John 18. So I want you to have it. Jesus is bringing to fulfillment. These These are not just accidents. This wasn't just a pretty place that Jesus wanted to go. There's a purpose that Jesus went to a garden. There's a purpose why it's recorded in history, it's in, in, in Scripture, and it's a purpose why we can learn from, okay? Yeah. Now, in the garden, John does not choose to give us that scene where Jesus is praying and takes Peter, James, and John a little deeper into the garden and goes off and prays and sweats drops of blood in earnest prayer to the Father. John doesn't give us that. But he's given us what the others didn't, which was that long narrative of, of Jesus' high priestly prayer. Okay, But we know that Jesus is in that garden because he's wrestled with the thoughts, his human thoughts, that, as he says in the other narratives, Father, if it be your will, take this cup from me. The cup meaning what I'm about to experience. Another type, okay, what I'm going to experience. And if you possible take this cup from me and of course at the end of that struggle jesus obeys the father and says but not my will but your will be done and remember at a a point earlier in john's gospel when he told the the, when the uh when the uh disciples wanted to be 
left and right and all these important places in, in the Gospels. We hear those stories and remember Jesus would say, can you drink from the cup I'm going to drink from? You know, that, that's not, so that, that's, a, that's a, another metaphor, if you will, the cup for what he's about to experience. So in this passion narrative, Jesus enters the garden. There's something else we can learn by his entering the garden. Jesus was not hiding. Jesus went to the very place he knew they would find him. May not have thought of that before. This is a bold move by Jesus. he's He's not afraid of the cross. He knows this has to be fulfilled. He's not hiding out in the dark of night. He's going to the very place where he knew they would find him. If, they were, if you were going to go look for Jesus in the middle of the night, Judas knew where to look. That's where he went a lot. And we know from other times in Scripture, Jesus often went to the mountains. Well, in Jerusalem, Mount Olivet's kind of like the mountains. Went to the mountains to pray and would often spend the night out in those mountains praying all night. So Jesus, we see Jesus fully knowing what he's doing, walking into the garden. And sure enough, uh, it's, verse 3 tells us that Judas is procuring a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests. Okay, the chief priests didn't go, but officers of the chief priests went, and some Pharisees. Now, the band of soldiers, who is that? Do we know who that is? Well, there's going to be the the guards of the, uh, uh, not the Pharisees, but the the chief priests. Okay, it's it's not their guards, their soldiers. Remember, the Jews don't have soldiers. Roman, Roman soldiers, oh, that's Roman, right. Roman soldiers? The okay. Jews have their own, they have their own, like it says, officers. They have their own kind of, quote, temple officers. But they don't have an army. Okay? They don't have soldiers. And, and the scripture is very clear here that it says Judas procured a band of soldiers. Now, what can we learn from that? More than likely, Judas had to pay those soldiers. More than likely, the Chief priests, or Pharisees, and or both, helped pay for those. And it's interesting that a Roman soldier, I mean, what it, Roman soldiers don't just get involved in going to arrest every Jew that they want arrested. Okay. But it is known that, the Roman, that Roman soldiers commonly would do about anything for money. I mean, so he just procures, offers, hey, who wants a little extra money? Come with us. We may need you. What does that also say about Judas? on his way there, that I'm going to take soldiers with you. I'm, I, I'm not just taking the priests or the chief priest officers and Pharisees. I'm going to take soldiers. What does that, what does that say about Judas? He's a chicken. He's scared. <laughs> That's right. He's afraid. Yeah. He knows what he's doing is wrong. He's feeling, he, he, he's made a choice to do it anyway. And he's, quite frankly, a little afraid. What is he afraid of? Well, as, this, as we go through this passage, we learn that Peter has a sword. Doesn't he? At the end of this narrative, this, these 11 verses, Peter uses his sword. Uh, Judas has like been with him for three years. You know, he's like, okay, I know Peter's, you know, in today's vernacular, you'd say, I know Peter's packing. Okay. <laughs> he's carrying a weapon. Um, Plus the fact that Judas also knows the powers that Jesus has. Well, you would think he does. He yeah. knows he's, he's, he's not willing to admit that he's truly God, or he wouldn't have betrayed him, I think. But, but in a sense, he, he did know. I see what you mean by that. Yeah. But he is afraid. And so he takes these soldiers with him. Then we find uh, 
verse 4, we, we learn something very important. Well, before we get there, a band of soldiers. It's several, not just one or two. Does that make sense? I read in Barclay this morning that there were probably 200. Now, that's amazing. So that, that, that it's a huge contingent just to arrest one Jew. Or maybe they think they're going to have to arrest 12. Okay. That's fascinating to me. This is important. Now, think about, have they tried to arrest Jesus before? Well, kind of, but not really. They kind of have. There's been many times they said, grab him, get him, let's arrest this guy. And they never could. He, he, he mystically would disappear, walk through them. They were going to throw him off a cliff once, and he was mystically able to pass through them. I mean, there's some knowledge that, hey, this guy's tough to catch. Let's take a bunch of soldiers. We're going to get him this time. So that's the, I wanted to see the scene that's happening here. It's little details we miss if we're not careful in reading through this. And then, so as they're there, verse 4 becomes very important. Then Jesus, knowing all that was to befall him, came forward and he spoke. So who's in charge in the garden? Jesus is in charge, isn't he? He knows everything that's going to happen. And he doesn't wait for them to come figure out who he is. He just steps forward and says, who are you looking for? I find that beautiful. Jesus is in charge. And he's not afraid. This is after his prayer time. Okay, He's got the strength of the Father, the strength of the Holy Spirit. He knows he's not alone. He knows this is what has to happen. And so he steps forward and says, who are you looking for? Now, it's very fascinating to me. This dialogue is not really recorded in the uh, other Gospels, if I remember right, this exact dialogue. And, I mean, they, they do record it in a way, but not with some of these details I'm, I'm going to point out. And uh, so Jesus, they say Jesus of Nazareth. That's his common name that he's known by, this, this Nazarene guy. You know, nothing good can come from Nazareth, right? He's known as Jesus of Nazareth. So that's who we're looking for, Jesus of Nazareth. And what does Jesus say? I am he. I am he. Now, if we look this up in the Greek, we've talked about this before, Jesus says these words. I'll write them down. Ego ami. Ego ami. What does that mean? It's me. I am. I am. That's the holy name of God, all the way back into the Old Testament. Yeah. I am on the mount. Remember on Mount Sinai? Yeah. I am who I am. Remember some of the times we would read about Jesus in the, in, when he was being called in front of Pharisees and things and confronted by them? He would say, I am, and they would accuse him of blasphemy. You don't use the holy name. You don't say, I am. You think you're God? You know that, he's had those confrontations with him before. But this time, when he says it, look what happens. I am. Judas is standing right there with him. When he said, I am, it says they drew back and fell to the ground. I I didn't go flip through all my other Gospels. I don't think that's in the other Gospels. Okay? Did they they really know who he was there? It might be. If I'm wrong, I'm wrong. They drew back. They heard the holy name of God. maybe Maybe there was something in the way he said it. Maybe there was something in the power and the presence 
of God's spirit that is with him now. He has been prayed and fortified and strengthened to face the cross. Whew, this is a thought. This is an amazing thought that they drew back and fell to the ground. I mean, there these 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 officers and and uh, Judas and and these Pharisees, I, they're a little fearful themselves. But they're so swallowed up by their pride, their sin, their blindness that they they're gonna they're just gonna follow through. You and I would say, well, how could they follow through with this? How could they do that? But it had to be. And they were blinded, and God knew that they would choose their blindness over the truth. And so they followed through. And so Jesus has to say again, Who are you looking for? You can see them kind of just maybe. Maybe starting to stand up, maybe trying to get a little courage back. Well, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says, I told you, I'm he. I told you, that's verse 8. I told you, I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now, this is, a, this is an important passage. What is Jesus doing here? Uh, admitting who he is, but if you're looking for me, you're looking for me, let these men go. What is he doing? He's protecting them, isn't he? Yeah. Letting them go is protecting his... Remember the prophecy? Not a one of them was lost. That's right. Except the son of perdition, which is Judas. Not a one of them was lost. He doesn't want them to face the cross, or their crosses. They will, several years later. But it's not time for their martyrdom. They're not strong enough. They don't have the faith to face martyrdom. And he's got a lot of work for them to do as the church. So he's going to protect them. He's protecting them to the very end. Let these men go. I think it's beautiful that Jesus is constantly thinking about the others. And uh, it says right there, this is to fulfill the word of whom those whom thou hast given me. I lost not one. Now, in this, as soon as Jesus says that, we, we have an altercation. Peter who's known to be brash, talks before he thinks. I'll follow you all the way to death, Lord. Oh, you will? You'll deny me three times, Jesus said. Yeah, this is Peter, the brash, bold one. What does Peter do? He draws his sword, and he reaches out. And, and this, this is important. Look at these little details. It says he cuts off. There's a high priest slave. Okay, now this is a slave, Malchus. We get his name here. And that's important, too. So let's think. Let me write a couple thoughts down here real quick. The name is important. Okay? The fact that he's a slave is important. And we're going to come back and talk about why. And which ear does he cut off? Right here. Why is that important? These are a lot of details for something John wrote down maybe 60 years later. Huh? A lot of details. Pretty powerful. There's a purpose to these details. When you see these little details in Scripture, that's just, this is just not a for no reason. We can learn something from these. Again, are types, if you will. Now, his name is Malchus. What might be the importance of the name? Why would why would it be important that they know the name? It's going to go down in history for one thing. Okay. And I wonder. It will also by saying his name is it. Later down the road, mm. people are going to know who Malchus was and that his ear was cut off. Yeah. But yet, also, they're going to find it's been healed. 
Yeah, we learn that in Luke's right. gospel. We learn in Luke's the only gospel where we learn that Jesus picked up the ear and healed him. And that's important, even though this isn't a study of Luke. I'm going to put it on there. Healed is important, so that's another one of the things we want to talk about. I have to write them down so I don't forget. Couldn't he be the last one that Jesus healed before the crucifixion? Uh, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I'm physically healed, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. So... You think anybody after the cross, after the resurrection, after the church is going strong, you think anybody wanted to look up Malchus? Maybe. I bet they did. Yeah. Hey, Malchus, tell us about what happened to you. Yeah. We don't have any history that on Malchus that I can find, but what a testimony Malchus would have. I don't, I mean, I'd like to believe he became a believer. If God put your ear back on, he wouldn't did. you become he a believer? Uh, that would be, <laughs> I, I can't imagine that he would. But, but what, a, what, a, what a powerful... So it becomes a witness to the events by knowing his name. People could look him up later. Um, and then also, uh, so that's why that's important. He becomes a witness. And then the, he's a slave. What's that a symbol of? It's a symbol of the state of humanity. Mm-hmm. We're, we're slaves of something. We're either slaves of God or we're slaves of the world, of sin. Okay, We're slaves of something. And we know we're called to be slaves to God. The, the apostles would use that. Paul uses that term a lot. He calls himself a slave. He, calls, he uses the word bond slave in a lot of his epistles and some of your, which can mean servant, but it goes deeper than just servant. It means he's been bought. A bond is a price. Okay. A bond was paid for his slavery, so he's become slave to God because God paid the price for him. That's what the bond slave word that Paul uses in a lot of his epistles. So Malchus is a slave, but that slave is redeemed in a sense that he's healed. Christ touches his ear and heals him. Okay. Now, the right ear, that's, inter- that's an interesting detail. What, what about the right ear? I, I wonder about that. Why the right ear? Well, wouldn't, wouldn't uh, that... Everything on a, on a Jew was the right, was the correct, or the good side. Mm-hmm. They didn't believe in left-handed people mm-hmm. or left mm-hmm. hand, left doing, using the left for anything. So most people are left-handed, I mean, are right-handed, okay? And uh, if I take my, if I draw my sword and I'm right-handed, and I come up to you, Dennis, and I'm going to, I cut off your right ear, okay? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm really close to, I, it is a slice on through, I can cut off your whole head. Yeah. Now, this sounds graphic, you know. It's a, it's a cross swing. Could have sliced off his whole head. Yeah. But he didn't, which would have been, you know, death. Um, so I think it just shows us, that little detail shows, this wasn't a little, well, where's my knife? <laughs> like that, just barely dab at the guy, you know. Scared type of dab at the guy with his, him, hit his closest ear, maybe his left ear. That's not what's happening here. This is a, this is a big swing. Now, why is Peter doing this? Does, is Peter right to do this? Let's talk about that for a well, minute. That's not is, something that, is Peter that right Jesus to do this? Wanted him to do. It's obvious, but okay. Would you have done it? Yeah, probably. Well, I'd like. To, I don't know. You know, clearly we we we're we're caught in the middle here. We, well, we okay, we're caught in the middle. Does he Jesus? Doesn't, he doesn't know the future. He, he doesn't <laughs> that's understand. Right. That's right. Why? Uh, why Jesus wouldn't want him to do that because he's just trying to protect Jesus. Exactly. This is the, he's trying to protect Jesus, and that's honorable. Yes. You with me? Yes. 
It's not. It's just not what Jesus wants. It's honorable. And he didn't want it from Peter, and he doesn't want it from us. Does Jesus need us to protect him? No. Absolutely not. Does God need anything? But we no. need him to protect us. Yeah, so so we, we don't, even though this was honorable, you know, and Peter was lawful, actually, because what is it that the Old Testament law says, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. He was lawful to try. In self-defense, he was lawful to try and protect his master. Okay, But Christ has come to bring a new way. And so he says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Okay, put it away, in other words. Cover it up. Shall I not drink from the cup my Father has given me? What is Jesus saying? You can't stop what has to happen. I must do this. God's will be done. That's right. It's all been settled. Okay, there is no other way. And there's no amount of violence... There's no amount of swinging swords or anything else that could ever claim the kingdom of God. I think there's maybe something for us to learn from that. In our world, especially today, I I will say throughout history, but it seems like history repeats itself, there have been wars fought in the name of Jesus. Crusades were fought in the name. Those come to mind. The first, you know, around the was it the 11th century, maybe, the, or the the uh, somewhere in the 11th to 12th centuries is when those big crusades were. Um, you know, those were were considered holy wars, right? The 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 knights of Western Europe and England and France and all of that area would uh, raise money and raise armies and and uh, they would go off to they were go they went off to the Holy Land specifically to try and deliver it from the hands of the Muslims who had the Islam had already conquered the Holy Lands started doing that in the seventh century bit by bit eventually conquered it all but we went there to win it back and they thought of it as a holy war they thought they were just in fact. There are historical records and things that teach us that popes in the church even offered uh, indulgences to people who would go fight this holy war. If you will, they, they offered what they called a plenary indulgence. You know what a plenary, well, first of all, do we know what an indulgence is? When I hear the word indulgence, I think chocolate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and indulge myself in some really decadent chocolate, right? Amen, brother. <laughs> it's got to be it's got to be soft and just <laughs> gooey. Spirit everywhere. So, so, but an indulgence in a, in a religious term that was a religious term used in the Middle Ages by the Western Church, the Catholic Church, and an, indul- an indulgence was uh, to let you off. I'm going to indulge you by letting you off of your penalty. And that penalty was believed to be the penalty that they would pay for their venial sins, not their serious mortal sins, in a place of purgatory. Now, that's a lot deeper than we have time to go into. But that's what they believed. Okay? So the indulgence was, if you do, and a plenary indulgence was all-encompassing. 
it's it complete. You know, ollie ollie oxen free. Okay, the old the old game we used to shout when we were kids. Here's a plenary indulgence. You're getting out of purgatory. You're not even going to purgatory. You can get out. You can bypass purgatory. Okay. If you die in this war, don't worry about it because you're going straight to heaven. <laughs> okay. That was the idea behind the indulgence, and those were granted to the to good meaning. They were good meaning people, but what were they trying to do? They were trying to win. The, they were trying to establish or reestablish in their thought the kingdom of God on earth in a physical place known as the Holy Land, Jerusalem, holy sites. But they were trying to do it by force. There's a lesson we must learn here. And Jesus is teaching Peter. There is not any time when it will be appropriate for you, Peter, or any of you, my disciples, to ever take the kingdom of God or think you can build the kingdom of God by force. Never. Okay? I really believe that's what Jesus is establishing here. Makes sense. Because when we think of the gospel, the gospel is to do what? It is to love our enemies, not fight our enemies. The gospel is to pray for those who are our enemies and to persecute us, not defend ourselves against them. I mean, this is difficult in our world. This is difficult because, I mean, we just don't want, we're, I can only speak for American culture because I'm American, Okay. That's all I can speak for. I'm raised an American. I'm, I'm an American. And we're pretty well taught to be independent-minded. Okay, we don't know. We don't know anybody anything. We're a sovereign nation, and this is the freest country on earth. And and we will defend it to the death, and defend our freedoms to the death. And as it comes to the kingdom of God, though, now America is not the kingdom of God. Let me get that straight. As the kingdom of God is concerned, the church of Jesus Christ on earth, there is no force that will is, a, is acceptable, no violent force that is acceptable, either to win it, to let me say it this way, either to establish it, reestablish it is a better word because Christ established it, to reestablish it when we think it's not around anymore or been lost, or to win it back or to defend it. God does not need us to violently defend him. God wants us to defend him with our words and our actions, with the gospel and with living out the gospel in the life of love. That's how we defend God. That's how we defend the nature of God. So that's why Jesus teaches, you know, you want to defend me? I tell you what you do. If somebody slaps you on the cheek, Dennis, if somebody comes up and cuts off your right ear, say, okay, you can take my left one too. I don't need to hear, you know. <laughs> Who of us would do that? If somebody comes up to you and slaps you, Jesus said, remember, on the cheek, give them the left cheek too. Somebody takes your cloak, you give them your whole garment or whatever, you know. You, you, you're remembering the passages? These are the, teachings. These are the teachings of Jesus. Jesus doesn't teach us to defend ourselves for his sake. Yes. What's so brilliant about that is he's teaching us by saying that, and that just hit me, is we are surrendering and not giving our enemies the power. We are giving our power to God. That's right. In the same way we're going to hear, it's a beautiful thought, in the same way we're going to hear Jesus in this passion narrative as he talks before Pilate, 
and others, he, he's, they have no power over him. Who's in control in the garden? Jesus, God. Jesus is in control in this garden. And he's in control even on the cross. He's in control as they strap him down to it. He's in control all the way through. And when we lay down our rights, and we then, then we don't give our enemy power over us. That's what I think you're trying to say. Yeah. We don't give, they have no power over us. Unless we retaliate, we're only responsible for our reaction. That's right. That's the only control we have. And if we allow God to control our reaction to them and it be love, they have no power. That's right. The minute we retaliate, now what happens? They have power. Now it's a match of force. Yes. Who's got the most power? Can I beat them back? Can they beat me? You know, now it's a match of force. But if I lay down my right to defend myself, then they have no power over me. And that can be very frustrating to an enemy. Uh, it can be very conquering, Jesus says. So Jesus teaches, some other things Jesus said to teach, he says, don't, don't fear somebody who can kill you and take your physical life. Fear him who has the power to put your soul in hell, meaning God, okay? Fear, and he doesn't mean fear and be afraid like you would a bully or an enemy, but to fear in, in awe of God, knowing that he is righteous, he is holy, he is just, and yes, he loves me, and he will always do what's right with me. So... Um, these are challenging times. These are very challenging times for, for the Christian church um, in the world. There are Christians in other parts of the world that are just literally being slaughtered. And they don't fight back. You know, they just don't. They just, they're getting slaughtered. And it, it's, it's, it's kind of, well, it breaks my heart and it's kind of sad to think that nobody's defending them um, for their own lives' sake. Uh, I'm thinking especially of people like in Syria and Egypt and these Eastern Christians that are just being slaughtered. Genocide, really. Uh, it, it just seems like there's no world power that's defending them. But then I also say, well, you know, does Christ need some government on earth to stop somebody from wiping out his church. No, he doesn't. He doesn't. I, I, it's, a, it's a very challenging thought. What is, what, is right, what is the right response in those situations? Because I don't want to see those people slaughtered. I don't want to see them. My instinct is go fight back. Mm-hmm. It really is. Um, but then I'm challenged by the words of Jesus. I, I, I'm not standing here from a soapbox telling you what to think or do. I am just telling you that this is what Jesus says. That's what Jesus seems to be teaching. There are other people that look at the gospel and they say, well, you know, earlier in the gospel, remember they, they tried it. They, Peter says, I think it's Peter that says, we have two swords here, Master, and Jesus said, it's enough. Well, there's debate over what Jesus meant by that. It is enough. Is it enough to wage a revolution someday or something? But I don't believe that's what Jesus meant because it's not consistent with all of his teachings. Meaning, I think he said, it's enough. Put it away. That's enough. We don't need that. Now, why were they carrying swords to begin with? Maybe they were afraid. Maybe they were. But, but you know, just a practicality, a lot of people carried a knife or a sword. 
in the, those days, especially in areas. I mean, there was, it could be a very dangerous place. Lots of robbers, lots of wilderness, lots of uh, dark streets. There, I mean, it was not uncommon, probably, to carry a knife or a sword. The guy that the, the, the Good Samaritan saved, mm-hmm. he was attacked by robbers or whatever. Right. And I think that was probably a common thing in that day. Right. Yeah, very common. Um, there was something here in my notes that I wanted to be able to catch for you real quick, if I can find it. I thought it was worth mentioning um, from this, from some of the the, uh, the ancient church fathers here. Uh, I was thinking it was by Augustine, so I'm looking real quick, or Chrysostom. Uh, Kind of, I've already mentioned it, but I wanted to add these thoughts. This was from, um, this is, both of these men are talking about, this is St. John Chrysostom and St. Augustine. Um, In talking about this idea, Chrysostom says, He therefore restored the servant's ear, This, even though this is in John, we know the story from Luke. He restored the servant's ear and said to Peter, all they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Now, we didn't read that in John's account. That's in Luke's account. But it's pertinent to our discussion. Okay? All they that take the sword shall perish by the sword. Or some versions have said, all those who live by the sword die by the sword. What, what is Jesus saying there? Well, if you're, you're going to be... Uh, Responsible for your own actions. You're, you're going to be a man of violence. You're going to die violently. Right, exactly. Okay. And be a, we're called to be men of peace, men and women of peace. But he goes on and says, as he did at the washing of the feet, when he checked his impetuosity by a reproof, meaning Jesus checked Peter's impetuousness by a reproof, he does the same here as well. The evangelist, that would be John, the writer, adds the name of the servant because what was done was very great. Not only because he healed him, but because he healed one who had come against him, who shortly after would strike him, and because he prevented the hostility that would probably have been kindled against his disciples by this deed. So what I think St. John is saying there, Chrysostom is saying, is that Malchus represents the enemy's side. Okay, he's not innocent here. He's part of the enemy that's coming after Jesus. And so Jesus is actually healing his enemies. That's pretty bold. That's pretty, be- that's pretty beautiful. Jesus is actually healing his enemies. Um, those who are in just a few hours going to be striking him. Not that Malchus is striking Jesus, but we know that some do. When, when, we, when we, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but when Jesus comes before uh, of course, the bad scourging comes at the hands of the Romans, but he gets even slapped around by the Jews. Um, so he's healing those who are about to to treat him with such disdain and disgust. So uh, I think it's just important to note uh, that those details, they're all in there for a reason. So when you're reading Scripture, trying to learn to read it for all it's worth. Think about little details. What what can we learn from that? What's happening here? 
Um, so this passage ended uh, with this discussion between Jesus and Peter. And then it's, it's going to move on in, in verse 12 and talk about the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews that seized Jesus and they bound him up. But we're going to save that for our next time together, which is, let me, let me get my calendar right. Um, next week is good, but the following week, I'm, no, no, next week is the 4th of July. <laughs> like I said last, I have to miss two weeks. Next week is the 4th of July. So have fun, do a cookout, be with your families. But then the following week, I'm going to be on vacation. So two-week break between part one and part two in chapter 18. Give you a chance to listen to some of the others and catch up on the podcast. But don't forget to come back. I I always hate these summer every other week breaks sometimes because it just kills momentum, okay? But uh, we're marching toward the cross here rapidly. We, We only have... Uh, you know, 18, 19, 20, and 21. We just have four chapters left here in the Gospel of John. So I guess it's time to start thinking about what we'll do next. <laughs> yeah, how long is that? Is 10, I don't know, <laughs> at least 10 weeks. Um, took me five weeks to do chapter 17. Um, but thank you for being here today. Thank you for your time. Thank you for studying. Uh, thank you for teaching. And, and, and let's just continue. Uh, Judy, yes. Uh, on uh, Judas. Since Jesus told him and the devil entered him when they did the, the supper, right. the Lord's Supper, right. Judas really couldn't back out of doing that because the devil would be any man that was meant for him to do that. Yeah. Is that true? Well, it would have been extremely difficult to fight that kind of demon possession on his own. I mean, the scripture teaches us the devil entered him. I mean, he gave himself over to darkness. He was conflicted up until that time, but once he cast that die, there pretty much was no going back. I think that's a valid observation. I think Judas always had the opportunity to not follow it through until maybe that time, and then it was just it was too late. And we know that that darkness and despair was so deep that he ended up taking his own life, couldn't live with himself for what he'd done. Uh, tragic thought. That uh, was meant to be. It, it was meant to be, but let us remember, let us remember, this is a good chance for me to plug this in. Even though Judas was meant to be, it wasn't, he wasn't used of God against his will. God foreknew before the foundation of the world who would obey and who wouldn't, who would follow him and who wouldn't. And he knew Judas was the right person to fulfill this role. But don't ever think that Judas was used by God against Judas's will. He wasn't. God doesn't do that to any of us. Okay, doesn't do that to any of us. He does fulfill prophecy, but not against his own will. Does that make sense? Yep. That's important. That's a very important detail because it has it says everything about who God is. If if that's not true, then God is playing a chess game and saying, "I'm going to use that person because I need them to do something bad for me." I'm going to use that. That's not God. That's not the God I love and serve. No. So remember that. That's a very important point. Every human has free will. Even Pharaoh, all of them, God just knew they were going to follow through with their own sin. Okay, good. Good. Any other thoughts, questions, comments? Good stuff. Okay. Okay. This is 
how God works. I have surrendered my grandkids over to God, and like you told me, he's in Africa too. Right. Well, those children landed in the United States and are back with mom yesterday at 2.30 in the afternoon. Amen. Praise the Lord. Safe from Africa. Praise the Lord. Um, well, and they're home. Yeah. And they're with her, and they're reunited. That's and wonderful. That's just been such a long That's beautiful. Journey. For two years. Two years. Wow. There. Amen. So, well, but thank the Lord. God, that's right. I, I obeyed and I didn't get angry. I didn't lash out. I prayed and I surrendered. For those that didn't know, it was they were taken there, yeah. away from their mom. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what a what a powerful answer to prayer. Yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. Praise God. God is from whom all blessings flow. Well, okay. Katie went over with him and then they kind of made her. Leave. Yeah, they made her leave. But now they're back. So see. Praise the Lord. Well, let's close in prayer this morning and thank the Lord for these blessings. Father in heaven, thank you for such blessings as we hear testified to safe return of these children. And I, I also thank you for just the, the surety, the beautiful, rich, deep love that we find in your word. Thank you for our time together to study the scriptures. And I pray that you would just enlighten us as we go from this place, cover over anything I've said that's wrong or misleading. I don't mean to ever mislead anyone, but please, Lord, with your power of your Holy Spirit, minister to us the truth of your word. Be with us now. Give us a safe time on the holiday. Until we meet again, we ask this in the strong name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you, Father, and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This has been Forming the Spirit Within. I'm Roger Culver, inviting you to tune in next time as Pastor Brad opens God's Word, helping us to form the Holy Spirit within us. Until then, may grace and peace be with you.